Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. Um, So we've been talking about foundations of the faith, and last couple of times we were talking about God, the nature of God, who God is. And obviously we could spend a lot more than just a few weeks on who God is, um, but uh, in some ways that's what we spend our whole life doing, is figuring out who God is <laughs> and getting to know him better and understand him better. And one of the things that we talked about, and I want to reiterate this because this comes up again tonight in a different way, um, tonight we're talking about being human, and so we're talking about the nature of mankind, what it means to be human. So we talked about the nature of God. What's interesting about the you know being human is certainly we are not as um, as sort of other and amazing as God, but there is a lot of glory and there is a lot of mystery in what it means to be human. And so we're going to look at that tonight and see what it means and what it has meant through scripture and, and kind of what the foundation of that is, knowing just a little bit more about who we are, um, the things that God does tell us, uh, is, is valuable. And um, the Bible doesn't tell us everything. You know, I, I once did a, a word, word study. I did a lot of, a lot of my early years as a pastor was, was doing counseling and in the process of counseling people I really began to under, wrestle with not understand but wrestle with you know what's the nature of the spirit what's the nature of the soul what's the nature of the mind what's the nature of our emotions what's the nature of our flesh how do all things these things impact us and I did a, a little word study as, as extensive as I could um, with my limitations uh, in scripture and discovered this that God is really unhelpful in that particular question that the term soul is used in lots of different ways throughout scripture. And sometimes it seems to mean flesh. And sometimes it seems to mean heart. And the word heart is used in lots of different ways. And the emotions are used in different ways. And the spirit is used in different ways. And, and even the word spirit, it's not even just the word spirit. It's the word breath and it's the word wind. So you have to figure out when is he saying, just talking about the wind? And when is he talking about the spirit? And when is he talking about our spirit? When is he talking about the Holy Spirit? It's not that helpful. Now, there are some things I got out of it. And I share those at, at times. Then I'll share some of that tonight. But I think the point is that if God wanted to be a lot more clear about it, he could have been. (laughs) And he chose not to be. So I think it's okay. I think there's a little bit of mystery in who we are too. But this this is what I started to say is one of the things that we talked about with God over the last few times is his holiness. And we defined holiness as otherness. Holiness is a big word. And and there's a lot of ways you could kind of come at that. But we have this tendency to think of it only in terms of purity, in terms of sort of a a standard of doing the right thing is what makes you holy, or or having the right ethics is what makes you holy, or behaving in a sort of purified manner is what makes you holy. But that isn't really the crux of the word holy. That's just one aspect that you can draw from that. The crux of the word holy is it means otherness. It means for God, it means he's so other than we are. Now, of course, that includes his justice, his goodness, his purity, and his love, that they are so perfect and complete. That's what makes them other. And so that's why the idea of holiness means living differently sometimes. And that's okay. It's even used that way occasionally in the New Testament. But I think to get to the crux of it, I want to remind you about what it means for God. It means his otherness. And we talked about how the Trinity is a reflection of his otherness. But we also talked about all his all his attributes are other they're different than ours because of their completeness because of their perfection so he doesn't just know things he knows everything he doesn't he isn't just powerful he is power he isn't just loving he is love he isn't just just he is justice 
And that, that that's kind of the otherness of God. He is the embodiment of all these good things that we know to be good. And in such a complete way that it makes his thoughts and his behaviors and his rationales and his motivations a little bit inscrutable to us. That is what it means that God is, is, is worthy of our awe and of our mystery. Another word that I think is, I don't think it's, I don't think it's synonymous, but it fits in with this sort of package of idea of holiness and otherness is the word glory. We say the word God's glory a lot. And that is also ill-defined in Scripture. It's a little hard. Sometimes it's a physical presence of God. Sometimes it's just this idea of God. Sometimes it seems to refer to the reputation of who God is. But I think this idea of otherness and holiness fits well with all that. That his glory, at least in part, it refers to the fact that he is unlike any other being in the universe. In his perfection. In his completeness. And that is a glorious thing. That is his reputation. So some of that has to do with being human. I'm going to explain why tonight. That idea of holiness, I want you to understand. I want you to see how it's both the same and different from who God is when it comes to being human. So we're going to walk through a little bit of the nature of, of man. And we're only going to spend one week on that tonight. I think we'll be able to cover what we need. We're going to stumble upon a couple of other foundational points that we're going to have to just mention and skip over because we're going to get to them later. They deserve a whole time. So that's okay if you find something's got short shrift tonight you'll find out we're going to get them later. And I'll, I'll point that out as we go. But in order to stay on the nature of man, it seems to make sense to understand what Scripture says about who we are and who humans are. It makes sense to me to start at the very beginning, at the creation. And so as we look at Genesis 1, 24 through 31, this is what we read. So just the context, which most of you are probably familiar with, the very first verse of Scripture is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The... the uh, uh, the title of the book of, of Genesis in the Hebrew language is In the Beginning. It's just those first three words. And so that's what this book is about, the start of everything, the beginning of things. And in the beginning, God creates everything. And so we see in the first 23 verses, God going through and creating everything. The, the lights and the heavens and the earth and the, and the plants and the shrubs. And, and he goes through all these things. And then he gets to verse 24, and it says this. He begins to create living animals, beings that... That, are, that walk around and move. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. You're starting to hear a phrase that's repeated over and over here. And then God said... Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and all over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. There's something really fascinating about this description to me of the, of the creation of mankind and then coming to us. First, just quickly, you will notice, I'm not going to comment on more than this. We mentioned last week when we talked about the Trinity that this is one of those verses in Genesis that may or may not reflect the Trinity. It's possible that's why he says, let us make mankind in our image. It's hard to understand what else he could be saying. Uh, it doesn't appear that we're made just in the image of angels, so I don't think he's like collaborating with the angels. There's no other scripture that tells us that the angels had any part in our creation. Um, so I don't think it's that. Um, it could just be, a, a. some people suggested a royal we, but again, that's just not a Hebrew thing. That wouldn't have been something they would have thought of as sort of an elevated way to speak. Um, 
So it, it's hard to understand what else it could be. I don't know, you know, if the rabbis have comments on it. I'm sure they have comments on everything. And um, if you were to go back and read their commentaries, of, which are an important part of the Jewish culture and religion, you'd probably find some explanations, but I'm not aware of them. But the Trinity is one possibility, but we're going to leave it at that. Whatever it is, this is God. God is creating us. It says clearly later he made mankind in his image, right? So that's what it meant. But having said that, it's one thing to say that we're made in God's image. That's kind of a trope in a sense. I mean, it's true and it's valuable, but it's something we kind of all know. If you've been to church, that's something you've heard, that we're made in the image of God. But there's something about this passage that kind of strikes that I think we miss the contrast. We miss that when it says that God, we're made in God's image, it comes at a point of contrast that we're supposed to grasp and we're supposed to feel some awe about. And here's how it works. Remember that phrase that he said over and over? He says, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Let the livestock and the creatures that move along ground and the wild animals each according to its kind. And then it reiterates, in case we missed the point, God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. Here's the image. Here's the picture that I think we're supposed to have. When God comes to creating the, the animals and the creatures, it's like he has a blueprint in his head of what that is. So when he goes to create horses, how does he know what to make a horse look like? There's never been a horse, right? He's the first. So I think it's the idea is he knows what a horse is because he's already envisioned it in his head. And so when he makes horses, what's the blueprint he uses? He uses this sort of external blueprint of what a horse is. And when he makes the cows, he uses this external blueprint of what a cow is. And when he makes the fish, he makes an external blueprint of what that particular fish is. So for everything he creates, he's got this picture in his head. He's got this, this kind that they are. And it's interesting. This is something we see that, that we even can identify things by kinds. Plato and Aristotle, one of their big contributions to science as philosophers was their understanding that things can be categorized. And Plato, at one point, he tells this story. He says, you can tell that things... Now, this was, this was the philosophy behind Plato. You don't have to agree with this part necessarily, although it fits what we see in Genesis. It happens to. Plato says, you can tell, for example, that horses are based upon some eternal idea of a horse. He says, you, you go to someone and you say, what is a horse? What makes a horse a horse? And they will give you a description if they've seen a horse. They will say it's got four legs and it's got a long face and it's got you know, a tail, and, and they'll, they'll kind of go through and describe the parts of a horse. And Plato says, but what's interesting is the horse is not just its parts. And he says, here's the proof of that. If I take you out to a field and I show you a horse that has two legs instead of four, you're not going to say, I don't know what that is. You're going to say, that's a horse with only two legs. You're going to recognize that it is something that's missing something, but it's not going to keep you from knowing what it is because the horse isn't comprised of those parts. And he says, in fact, there isn't a single part you can take away that will cause you to say, that is not a horse. He said, even if you add things, right? If you were to add, for example, a horn, he doesn't go into this, but if you were to add a horn, I guess we might say it's a unicorn, but if you ask them what a unicorn is, they're going to say it's a horse with a horn. <laughs> if we went and we saw a purple polka-dotted horse, something we'd never seen before, we wouldn't say we don't know what that is. We would say, that's a purple polka-dotted horse. The point is that, that, that what Plato says is all of the creatures of the world, they're made after something. They're made in the image of a blueprint of what a horse is. So when it says everything was made according to its kind, that's what it's saying. It's saying God made the horses according to horses. God made the cows according to cows. When he made these things, he made them according to what they were. 
period. And then it comes to mankind. And it doesn't say, as you would think it would as you follow the flow, it doesn't say, let us make mankind according to their kind. Mankind is not made in the image of this external blueprint that God has. The amazing moment that happens here in the story of the creation is that mankind, rather than being made in its own kind, in its own image, is actually made in the image of the creator himself. That is supposed to be sort of an awe-stopping moment, right? That's a moment where we hear this and go, wait a minute, that makes men different. They're not like everything else. They're not just created according to their kind. By the way, I'm actually going to try not to for clarity, but if I use the term men, I mean mankind today. I mean humankind. I mean human persons. Okay? <laughs> just, just, just be gracious with my long-time habits. But this is what they say. This is what God is saying. This is what the passage is saying is that humans are different. We're created not with this external picture. It's not like God said, well, we got horses, we got cows, and now we got people. No, he said, we got horses, we got cows, and now we got image of God. We got people made to look like me. We got things that are created whose purpose is to represent me so that when people see them, they'll know that's what God is like. That's, that's huge. That's a really big deal, I think, in this passage. I do want to stress, we'll come back to this very briefly, but I want to stress that scripture is very clear that the image of God in, as he created mankind includes both male and female. Do we understand that? He's not like the male or in the image of the female or not. They're both there. But they are different as well. We'll get to that in a second. But they are created. All of humans are created in the image of God. So one of the things we know about the nature of humans, according to scripture, and it's a really big deal that we shouldn't skip over lightly, is that we're made in God's image. And there's a lot of discussion about what that means, right? There's a lot of discussion about what it could mean because it doesn't go on to tell us in what ways we're made in God's image, right? What, what, how are we made in God's image? We know that God is spirit, so it's hard to picture that in the physicality we're made in his image. So what does it mean to be made in his image? And we don't know for sure, but one thing we do know is that this fact, as it's presented to us in the Genesis, means that we are distinct from the rest of creation. There's nothing else in all of creation which is modeled after God himself. Everything else in all of creation is modeled after what it is. It is just what it is. We are the self-portrait. Crazy. Crazy thought. So that's the first thing we know, is that as he's creating everything, when he gets to making mankind, that's right, he's making the self-portrait. We are made in his image. Now, in the same way that a self-portrait of Van Gogh doesn't have all the three-dimensional character, personality, and abilities of the actual Van Gogh, so also I'm not saying that we are like God in that sense. We are not little gods in that sense. We are much more limited just as a self-portrait is. But nonetheless, it's clear when people look at a Van Gogh picture of Van Gogh, that it's supposed to be Van Gogh. So we're distinct from the rest of creation, and this is where I want to point out what that means is, compared to the rest of creation, we also are other. Do you see that? There's a distinctness to us, or we are holy. When we are created, at the beginning we are holy because we are different from everything else. Now, we're not the same holiness that God is. We'll talk about that in a second. But there is a degree, there is a way a way as a self-portrait is different from the landscape that Van Gogh paints or a different person that Van Gogh paints. A self-portrait is different. 
so also we are different and set apart from the rest of God's creation. And that makes us holy. It makes us other for all of the other things that are there. It's a big deal. It means something. So we're distinct from the rest of creation. He goes on, though. Remember that in that passage, what else does he say? He says, because of their otherness, because they are made in my image, they now have purpose. They have authority and responsibility. What was that authority and responsibility? What was that purpose? Does anybody remember from what we just read? Yeah, to take care of the rest of the creation. Let them, he says, rule over the fish of the sea. But again, we understand, and scripture is very clear, and I think even the Genesis context is clear, that the idea of rule over there is one of responsibility combined with authority. In a perfect world, authority and responsibility are always combined. If you have responsibility to do something, but you don't have the authority to do it, that is just frustrating. If you've ever been in a job like that, that's hard. But there's also a problem if people have authority, but don't take responsibility. They should always be together. And in this case, there are in our purpose. Our purpose is to rule over the rest of the creation. Why? Because we are to represent God. We have an authority and a responsibility to take care of the entire world, this creation of God, as if he would take care of it himself. So that's part of what it means to be made in God's image. Not only do we have this otherness, but this otherness gives us a purpose of both authority and responsibility to care for the climate around us. In a lot of ways, what you could say is that we are representing God in a material world. God is spirit. But in order to be represented in the material world that he created, he needs a material being, a fleshly being that can represent his actions and his activities in a way that the rest of the material creation can see and understand. It goes on, there's, a, the, there's another verse in chapter 2. So, oh, sorry, and that means we're spiritual, by the way. Even though we're representing God in the material world, we are spiritual. And one of the, one of the indications of this, one of the cool things is ch uh, chapter 2, verse 7. So one of the things that happens, lots of discussion about Genesis 1 and 2, and, and you're, you're welcome to engage in all of it out there. There's a lot of ideas. But one of the things that I think is true that helps you to understand as you read Genesis 1 and 2 is that it tells the creation story twice. And you might ask, why tell it twice? And one of the reasons it tells it twice is because that's actually just a very Hebrew thing to do. The Hebrews like to repeat themselves. And as they repeat themselves, what they often do is give an overview followed by detail. Okay? So Genesis 1, we have this overview of the creation. In Genesis 2, we have some detail about what that looks like. And in verse 7, we read this. Uh, maybe. Well, let me, I'll just read it to you. Apparently, I don't have it here yet. The, the Lord God formed a man, Genesis 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So what we see here is we see this conflation, this, this sort of duality in a sense of who man is. He is formed of the dust of the ground. We'll get to that in a second. He has this material position so he can represent God in a material world. But he also, it says, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This is that moment. Remember when I told you that the word spirit isn't even always translated spirit? The word spirit is also breath or wind. Anytime you see that in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, it's the same word. 
So where it says here, he breathed into him the breath of life, you could read it, he inspired into him the spirit of life. I mean, it's the same word for spirit. I'm not stretching at all. It makes sense to translate it breathed into him the breath of life because it seems to fit the context. But I would argue it's both. I would argue that the breath of life is our spirit. That God no longer creates us physically, but he implants in us a spirit. And that spirit comes straight from the spirit of God. It is the image of God. It is this part that makes us most able to represent God on the earth. Because we share a part of his spirit itself. So God formed man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And this is part of what makes us spiritual, and this is part of what makes us other. We're going to come back to this idea, this is one piece, that we are created in God's image. And I want to make sure that we spent time to understand this is a big deal. Do you understand this is a big deal? Okay, good. We could call this, if we'd like to, and we would like to, because it's going to come up on a slide later, so you need to remember this. We could call this the original glory. You may have heard the phrase original sin, and we'll get to that later, but this is the original glory of God. This is the original glory of man, that we are made in God's image. We are spiritual, and we've been given the spirit as well as the, the physicality of who we are. So hold that thought. So we see that we're made in God's image. We're distinct from the rest of creation. That means we are other and holy like God, not to the same degree, but like him. It means that we have purpose in our authority and responsibility, and we represent God in the material world, and we are spiritual. But now, remember the other part of that verse we just read? We are made from the dust of the earth. So this is the second part of who we are as human beings. We are made in the material world. We're not only spiritual, but we're made in the material world. Number one, we're made of the dust of the earth. We're made, if you think about that, we're made of the same basic building blocks. What's the dust of the earth? Well, it's the, it's the molecules and the atoms. It's everything. I mean, dust really is actually just people. And, you know, a lot of times dust is just people and creatures in pieces. <laughs> dust of the earth. I mean, even if it's the dirt, it's the sand. The point is everything all material things are made of the same basic building blocks. This is what, it, what atoms and molecules and all that's about. And so we're made of the same stuff as the rest of the creatures. That isn't what makes us other. That isn't what makes us holy. That dust of the earth isn't what makes us there. Number two, one of the things that's also distinct of being physical is that physically we're, we're separated into two different physical parts, male and female. And, and so we see that this is something that as you go through scripture, you see that God has attributes that we might call masculine and feminine, but he is neither male nor female. He is spirit. That's what we're told. But we are male and female because it's part of our physical existence. We are, according to, the, to Genesis, we are equal. We are made as the image of God. We both have the spirit of God in us. Adam and Eve equally shared the spirit of God. And, but we're different. And if no other way, we're definitely different physically. We won't get into all the arguments about how different we are physiologically, psychologically, what the other makeups may be, because there's a lot there that Genesis doesn't talk about. But it does say that we're physically different, and there's a purpose and a reason for that. But that's part of our material nature. That's part of the material world in which we've been made. That's a way in which we are not like God. That is not in itself the image of God. It is interesting. I'll just bring this out because I think it's, it's relevant and it's not something that comes up a lot. Uh, a lot of you remember the story that, that Adam is created, and then when God goes to create 
it says that they couldn't find a suitable partner, a suitable helper, a suitable equal partner is my understanding for Adam. And, they, and so Adam looks at all the animals. And it's kind of fun to think about the fact that, again, not if you just think about Adam being the only human being, and he has all the animals of the world to choose from to help him in his tasks of taking care of the world, there's actually some interesting choices, right? You might look at an elephant and go, an elephant would be really useful. You know, I could ride it when I need to go somewhere. It can lift things for me. It's very strong. It's very big. You might look at a Labrador retriever and say, a Labrador retriever is pretty awesome. Give me companion and also help me out when I need it. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of creatures you might look at and say, if I'm picking a helper, if I'm picking a partner, a gorilla, a chimpanzee, if I'm picking something, you know, there's a lot of animals that might fit the bill. But it says at the end, none of them did. And why? Because none of them were equal to Adam. And God knew that was going to happen because after all that happens, it says that God puts Adam to sleep. And then the way it reads in our, in our texts is that he took a rib from Adam's side and created Eve out of it. And I just want to say one thing, and I'm not making, please do not extrapolate. I may not be making the point you think I'm making, but I just want to make this point because it's relevant. The Hebrew language, the ancient Hebrew text, has no word for rib. They didn't know enough about anatomy to even know what a rib was at this point. Now, they, they, you know, there's ribs and lions and things. But the word for rib here isn't the word for rib. It's the word for side. So what this actually says, in essence, is that, Abraham, half of him is taken to make the woman. Sorry, Abraham would be strange at this moment. Adam, half of him is taken to make the woman. Again, I'm not saying there aren't differences. There are. And I'm not saying that we're supposed to take from this that God is somehow half male and female. I think that's wrong. He's neither male nor female. But I am saying that I think there's an equality here that is stressed in the text that we don't always see. So, again, don't go too far with that. I'm not arguing maybe what you think I'm arguing but I'm at least trying to straighten the balance a little bit of the way we've often read that. Okay, nonetheless, here we are. Dust of the earth, male and female, equal but different. Here's the other thing that we know about us being physical. One thing we know for sure, one of the characteristics of God, we said because he's perfect and all his attributes are perfect, we said God is present, right? He exists, but being perfect means he is present everywhere, all at once, all the time. Well, being in a physical body, guess what that means? We can only be in one place at one time, and that appears to be true from the beginning. <laughs> that doesn't appear to be something that just happened after the fall. That just seems to be a limitation of what it means to be human. And guess what? Part of what it means to be human means that we are limited. It just does. It means we are limited. We're not all-knowing. We're not all-powerful, and we're not eternal. By virtue of being created by God, we already are different from God in that we haven't lived forever. We aren't pre-existent. Now, we may be eternal going that direction, but we, didn't, we don't go that direction for all of infinity. So it's clear that part of humanity is that we are made in God's image, but the others that were made in the material world, which means we're made of the same building blocks as everything else, means that we are made male and female, and it also means that we are limited. We have limitations. We're not all-powerful, we're not all-knowing, and we're not eternal. And then Scripture gives us a hint, a really big hint, a really important hint about something else that we are not capable of doing that God is capable of doing. Another limitation, but it may surprise you because it's a limitation you don't think you have, most of us. It says this. It says, The Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now, we're not going to talk about the fall tonight. This is one of those moments we're going to pick a lot of this up next week. But, but not talking about the fall, nonetheless, I want you to see the setup for what's called the fall, for the sin, for the moment, because it's bizarre. Because it doesn't make sense to us. I want you to notice the tree that God does not want Adam and Eve to eat from. It's not the tree of evil. That you might say, sure, God doesn't want them to be evil. God's like Google. Don't be evil. He's a better search engine. But it, it doesn't say the tree of evil. It also doesn't even say the tree of good and evil. It doesn't say don't eat from the tree of good and evil, which you could sort of argue, I suppose, because then you're like, well, then you might get into one, and then you get the other, and it's all mixed. No, it says don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is an interesting thing, because then you start thinking, so God didn't want them to know the difference between good and evil? Because if he didn't want them to know the difference between good and evil, then how can they know not to do what he's telling them not to do? <laughs> how, can, how can they obey if they're not supposed to know what's right and wrong? And this is where we, in our current state, we look and we say, but that's what we teach our kids, and you should. We teach our kids what's right and wrong. We try to teach them what's good and evil. We, we try to live our lives by doing good and avoiding evil. So what is this? Well, it's really interesting. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll again get into the details of this next week of the fall, but one thing it does tell us is that not only are we limited by in not being all-knowing and not being all-powerful and not being eternal. But apparently, what Scripture is telling us here is that prior to eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we don't even have the capacity to determine good from evil. Now, think about that for a second, because that is so much a staple of the way most of us live our lives. That we're supposed to be able to know what's right and what's wrong. And what God is saying to them and we'll look at this next week. But what God is saying to them is, you are not capable of knowing the difference between right and wrong. So I don't even want you to eat of this tree because it'll just mess you up. In fact, when Satan tempts them, he says to them, God knows that if you eat of the tree, you will be like God, knowing good from evil. In other words, Satan knows it's a divine quality, not one we were supposed to have. And I know that everything in you says, no, wait, but we have to know. And I say to you, that's because we all live at a time after we've tasted of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we don't understand any other way to live. But if you take half a moment and really think about it, just ask this question. As a human race, given the history of everything you know, how good are we at determining good from evil? It becomes obvious, doesn't it? You kind of go, oh my gosh, we're terrible at this. <laughs> we put so much into being able to know good from evil, but we're really bad at it. Even at our best, when we make a lot of rules to keep people on track, ask yourself, how many of those rules drive you nuts because they don't seem quite right? How does bureaucracy get such a bad rap? Is it because, people make, because we shouldn't have rules? No, but it's because we don't know how to make good rules. Why is our tax code bigger than the New Testament? And it is. Because we don't know how to make good rules. And when we make them, we don't know how to enforce them. And even if we enforce them, we don't know how to keep them. <laughs> we're terrible at it. The fact is, we think this is how we're supposed to live our life, but it's precisely because we ate of the tree we weren't supposed to. So knowing that, in fact, we don't even have this capacity, this is a limitation of what it means to be human. 
This is a limitation of who we were. We're of the dust of the earth. We're male and female. We're limited in all sorts of ways. And one of those ways we're limited is that we cannot tell the difference between good and evil. That we're, at best, really bad at it. At worst, we might be incapable of it. <laughs> and all of this is to say that we're, one, spiritual, and two, fleshly. And we are this sort of combination of spirit in flesh. And what I think we can call this, so we titled the first one the, the original glory. Let's call this second part of humanity. And remember, this is previous to the fall. This is not a curse. This is our perfect condition, is that we are not only made in the image of God, but we are also made in the material world with a certain inherent frailty. Hear that? Frailty is not a mistake. The frailty of humanity didn't come after the curse. Now, yes, we were going to live forever. In that sense, we weren't frail the way we are today. We were less frail than we are now. But there is a certain limitation and frailty that was built into being human from the beginning. Because we're not God. If you think about this idea of being spirit, being, being the image of God in this limited body, you'll find there's kind of some amazing things that come out of this. Before we go back to this verse, which we're going to do in a second. I want you to think about the fact, for example, that as humans, one of the abilities that God gave us was the ability to create life. Now that, again, is, a, is an astounding authority and responsibility. It's amazing that we can do that. But isn't it interesting that no single person can do it by themselves? That, that somehow in our frailty, we have to actually literally get together to do it? We have to work together to create life? I think that's just an example of how amazing and glorious it is to be human. Now, animals also give life, I understand that. But how amazing it is to be created and have the ability to create life, but also how limited we are. We can't create from nothing. We need materials to work with. And even the best things we can do, we need each other for. But now, let's go back to this idea of the tree. As I mentioned, next week we're going to talk about evil, and we'll talk about the fall specifically. But for now, let's just stipulate that what happens is that the temptation of the tree is to pretend we're not limited. What Adam and Eve were told by the devil is, if you eat of the tree, you'll be like God. You won't need God. You won't be limited anymore. It is a denial of the reality that we are made by God and that limitations are built in to how we're made. It's a desire to see our otherness, which we do have, our otherness in all creation, not as that we're made in the image of God, but that somehow we're made independently of God, that we can be holy and other without God. See, God is complete in himself. For all of eternity, for all of infinity, he was complete in himself. One of the mysteries and beauties of the Trinity is it reminds us that God didn't even need us for community. He already had community and relationship and love. When God says to Moses, I'm God, and Moses says, who are you? God's answer is, I am. What does that mean? It just means I exist without you. <laughs> I don't need anything. By eating the tree, or of the tree, 
Adam and Eve were denying the reality and they were attempting to be complete without God. To think that their, their completeness was sufficient as God's is for himself. They thought of themselves, we're complete as we are. But not as a result of the curse, simply as a result of being human, it has never been true that we are enough by ourselves. It's interesting that the whole reason I believe that God said to them, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, when you start asking those questions, how did they even know what to do at that moment? How did they know not to eat the tree if they didn't know the difference between good and evil? The answer is super obvious. They knew because God told them. Their ability to know what's good and evil was dependent upon God knowing and telling them, period. We have always been dependent upon God. And it has been part of our nature that we, are, that we need to submit to God for our completeness. And Adam and Eve refused to do that. And the consequence is, in effect, what we saw. A life without God. And it's turned out to not be great. The fact that we desired to be complete without God, the fact that Adam and Eve thought maybe they could be complete without God didn't change the reality of who they were, which was incomplete without God. Completely complete with God, but incomplete without him. And this is one way we could say this. That God's holiness or his otherness or his glory comes from his self-sufficient, independent uniqueness. It just comes from who he is. He doesn't need anybody else for it. Nobody else makes it happen for him. He didn't need us to glorify him for all of eternity before he created us, correct? He was glorious anyway. His glory, his otherness, his holiness comes from the fact that he is I am. He is independent and self-sufficient and unique among all the universe. Our holiness, on the other hand, our otherness and our glory, which are all real and all amazing, but they come from being set apart by God for him. Our holiness and otherness comes from the fact that he looked at all of creation and he said, I am creating this one to be mine. That's what makes us holy and other. And as soon as we step away from that, we lose our holiness. We lose our otherness. Adam and Eve's failure to accept this reality, instead trying to find their glory and their holiness apart from this designed otherness, and this is the third part of who we are, led to a corruption of what we were intended to be. And not just as a punishment by God, but I hope you're beginning to see as an obvious, inevitable consequence. If our glory is steeped in being submitted to who God has created us to be, then stepping away from that means inevitably losing that glory. Losing that otherness. And here's the way scripture speaks of this loss. Just a few quick verses. Genesis 6, 5 through 8. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Once we decided that we would be better at deciding what's good and evil, it turns out that it just progressively got to a place where we just did only evil. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The heart is actually one of the few parts of Scripture where, the, where it's, it's very often the same idea throughout Scripture, and it means the core, the center of who you are. This is saying, corrupt to the bone. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 7, 
Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them, right? We have a tendency to think other things make us bad. If, if I'd been raised differently, if I had different things, if I hadn't, you know, taken this, if I hadn't had this influence, if I hadn't had this thing, that wouldn't have made me bad. Can those things have influences on us? They can. But the thing that Jesus is saying is nothing outside of a person can defile them. That isn't what makes you bad. He says this, rather it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. <laughs> That's not a happy message. That's, you know, and the, the context is he's talking to Pharisees who are like, your apostles, they eat without washing their hands. And Jesus is like, you're worried about what we're putting in our bodies. Don't you realize you're just already bad to the bone and not in a good, you know, sexy way? He says, rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. And after he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? I love the way he's like, you still don't get it. And then just kind of repeats the same sentence. <laughs> he's like, I meant exactly what I said. But then he goes on. For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. There's a little anatomy lesson for you. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Not a happy message. And not when everyone in our culture believes. But Jesus says that is part of who man is today. That is part of who humankind is today. Not only are you limited... But now what comes out of you is already corrupt. Every evil thought starts in you. Don't worry, the message doesn't end here. And, but what I want you to see, I made a big deal out of the original glory. I want to make a big deal out of this too, because I want you to see how weird it is that humankind carries both. So we carry at all times our original glory. This is, this is, let's speak of humankind generally right now. I'm not speaking of what happens after redemption or salvation. We haven't gotten to that in our foundations yet. I'll touch on it so you're not all too confused, hopefully. But the point is, as humankind, the state of mankind is this. We carry all three of these realities at the same time. We have an original glory. You can look at humankind and you can see what Abraham Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. You can see that there's an ability to do amazing things. There's an ability to create great beauty. There's an ability to love and sacrifice in amazing ways. There's nothing in scriptures that says that humans can't do anything good. In fact, after the fall, they're building the Tower of Babel. And God says, if we let them work together, there's nothing they can't do. There is amazing things that we can do and feel and, and, and behave because that image of God we carry with us always. We may have sacrificed our spirit, but we are still these people that were created uniquely to be the banners of God's kingship. So we carry that original glory, but we also carry our frail nature. You may not like it. I know I don't, but you are limited, humans. You are limited. And we carry with us what has often been called our original sin. Meaning that every human being born carries within them this defilement 
from the inside out. Now, if you think about all three of those together, and then you come to the question people usually ask, is man inherently bad or good, you'll notice that the answer is yes. <laughs> which is why it's a complicated question. There is something in us which is inherently good. There is that image of God behind everything. But there is also that corruption. And then there's the, just that frailty. That no matter what we want to do, sometimes we just can't. Sometimes we're just not enough. Sometimes it's just impossible. I don't know anything that has taught me that lesson more than being a parent. When you're a parent, after a certain point, you begin to realize, oh, I cannot be the perfect father that I thought I was going to be. I cannot produce kids without dysfunction because I'm limited by my own. <laughs> I cannot say yes to every need that they feel, even if I want to, because I'm limited financially and physically and mentally and emotionally and spiritually. I just can't do it. So we're still unique among creation with an original glory as God's creation. We still contain these amazing abilities to create life, to love people, and even to reflect God's beauty in all of our creation and work. It is amazing what we can do. And there is nothing wrong or, or, or sinful about looking around the world and man's accomplishments and occasionally saying, that's amazing. Wow. That's incredible. There's a piece of art that you look at I, some, of, some of Van Gogh's art I look at, and even because I know his limitations, and I know the corruption that he shared that we all share, and I look at some of his art, and for me, I just think, I see God. I look at the scientific accomplishments, the achievements that we've done. It's, it's easy to, to scorn the iPhones and, and the things because they can take too much of our attention and time, but I think... Take a, take a founding father and give him an iPhone. It would consume a lot of his time. He would be amazed. <laughs> he would say, what is happening here? <laughs> it is okay to be amazed. And even the goodness that men are capable of. We see it. We see the helpers. We see the people. That's okay. But we're also still frail as humans. We're still limited in our power and in our intelligence. We have not, contrary to what a lot of us maybe thought, two or three years ago in America, we have not conquered disease and injustice and crime and hatred, have we? We're limited. We're incapable of doing everything we want. And even our most important accomplishments we seem to need each other for. And even then we come up short. And we're corrupted. We're capable of destroying life and creating a great ugliness. You know, one of my favorite pictures of this idea of corruption, because again, how can we be what, the, what, what some people call totally depraved, completely depraved? How can we be completely corrupted? In other words, that it's just all messed up. How can that be true and we still keep the image of God? How can both be true at once? I love this picture. So Francis Schaeffer, I actually mentioned him last week, so here he is again, another, another, another plug to read Francis Schaeffer if you never have. He tells this story. He says, it's like an art museum. Imagine that you had an art museum filled with the most beautiful pictures by the best painters, the most important artists in the world ever throughout all history. The ones you like, not the ones you're supposed to like, the ones you actually like. Mm -hmm. 
Let's pretend that you go to a museum and that museum is just filled with works of these masters. And they're amazing and they're beautiful. And then one night a vandal comes into the museum, to the building, and he's got a can of red paint and he's got a paintbrush. And he dips his paintbrush in the red paint and he walks across every painting on every wall and he draws this, this red mark across every single painting. Every single one. He doesn't miss a single painting. And then he goes down into the storeroom of the museum for the ones they haven't even put on the walls and he puts a red mark across every single painting in the storeroom. And then he goes to the homes of anyone who bought any of these paintings and he puts a red mark across every single one of those. Not a single picture, sculpture, or piece of art is missed by this vandal. He's incredibly good at his job. <laughs> and he puts a red line across all of them and it would be absolutely fair to say that he has ruined all of these works of art. But it's also true that if you look at those works of art, they still will maintain the beauty behind that red mark, won't they? They still will maintain, you can see what the original master had in mind, and you can be, you can weep at the tragedy of the corruption and say this picture is completely ruined, I'm not paying $10 million for it now. And at the same time say, the reason it's such a tragedy, the reason I weep so much is because I can see the master's work in there anyway. I think that's what it means to be completely corrupt. I think that's what it means that we're totally depraved. We are ruined. There's a red mark across all of us. Our intellect, our heart, our soul, our mind. That red mark has not missed any part of us. And yet, underneath it, you can see the work of God. The masterpiece of God's imagery. So this is the nature of humanity. Our original glory, our frail nature, and our original sin. And I like this picture because it really explains a lot of history, doesn't it? It explains the complexity of what happens. It explains the fact that, that, you know, Hitler and Gandhi can coexist in the same world. It's crazy. There's one more wrinkle to this, though. One more thing that's, I think, important for us to understand. And that's, we know it. Here's what I mean by that. As humans, we feel all of these, all three of these at once. We feel our limitations. That's an easy one, right? Who among us hasn't at some point felt your limitations? Maybe some of you might still be young enough you haven't gotten there yet. Don't worry, you will. But we, we feel our limitations. We only have so much time in a day, we say. I wish I could be more than one place at a time, we say. I'm just not smart enough to figure this out, we say. I, for years and years and years, years and years, I like sleeping. I hate the fact we have to sleep. It's just been my thing. So much time is wasted sleeping. I understand it's not really wasted. Sleep is good. But I grade against it. There are times I just think, just think of all the things I could do if I didn't have to give up those hours. It'd be amazing. We grade against our limitations. But you know what else? I think we also recognize our original glory. There's a piece in us which longs for that perfection, for that beauty, for God. We see it. We know it. We know it exists. We're looking for it. We want it. We, we, we know there's goodness out there to be had, to be lived, and to be done. And we want to do that. And our limitations get in the way, and yet we still keep trying, don't we? Most of us, we still keep going for it. We feel that longing for God. Solomon says that it's a dilemma. It's a burden that's been placed upon man that eternity is written in our souls. I love that picture. 
And he, and he says it's a burden. He says it's not a great thing. It's a burden because we all feel that we should live forever. We all feel that our works should live forever. We all feel that what we should do should matter. Why do we have this urge, this desire? If all we are is nothing, we wouldn't care. But this original glory in us, we know it's there. We know there's a beauty out there that we're missing. We know there's a perfection that we long for. We feel it and we know it. And we know our limitations. And those too great against us. But as if that's not bad enough, we also know we're messed up. We just do. We know that, that, that there's a, a need for redemption. We know there's a need for cleansing. We know there's a need for healing. However you look at it, we know something's not right. Beyond just being limited, we're wrong. The problem is, without connection to God, we can never regain our purpose. The problem is by removing our otherness from God, we can never truly be that other and that holiness that is always just beyond our grasp that we believe is there, but we can never get to because it needs to be in submission to God. So we want to do good, but we're foiled by both our limitations and our sin. And look, I'm not saying it isn't nicer for everyone when people do good. I'm not saying there's no point in doing good. I like being around people who do good. Whether they're believers or Christians or not, I'd still prefer them to do good in my presence. But it's not eternal, and it's not enough. What we need is that reconnection to God. We need a return to our original glory, and what we really need is someone with a really, really good restoring process to remove that red paint from every painting. And that's why God's great plan involving the gospel was necessary that's why when we get to the foundation of the faith where we talk about the gospel that's what's happening so we'll cover that more in more completeness when we get there but of course i don't want to leave you confused or despairing so let me assure you that god's plan is enough you're not but god is and god's plan is so great that he makes you enough and that's the beautiful part God restores you completely. He doesn't just wipe off and remove that red mark, and if you look closely, you can still see it there. No, he makes it as if it never was. He returns you to your original glory. His plan in the gospel is to return all of us to our original glory from inside to outside completely. We're still in our old bodies right now, so it's not all done yet. But the most important parts have been done. If you've accepted the redemption of Christ... The inside has been cleansed. That defilement is no longer true. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But at least you have hope of the reality of that. One of our focus groups, I want to wrap up with this. One of our focus groups, um, so we have, one of our focus groups is actually doing a study to, to line up with what we're doing on Sundays, but we're doing it a little differently. Instead of them doing the study after they hear the teaching, they're doing a study on the topic I'm going to teach on, and then, and then they're coming to the teaching just for more information. And one of the things that that did is it gave me the opportunity to ask them, do you have any questions that came up that you'd like me to address at the teaching? And so one of our focus groups did have a question and they asked this, how do we help others? And I think they meant specifically their children. How do we help others to see the good in the world when there's so much emphasis on evil? 
when there's so many people and so many entities who seem quick to point out the, the, the sin and the depravity, which is there, how do we help our children see the glory of God? How do we help them see good? And actually, I'm actually going to talk about this more next week when we talk about the nature of evil. But I do want to say for now just this. So let me paraphrase Mrs. Rogers. You all know who Mrs. Rogers is? She's Mr. Rogers' mother. I just assumed that would be her name. <laughs> Mr. Rogers' mother, according to Mr. Rogers, Mr. Fred Rogers, used to say to him, when there's calamity, when there's tragedy, when there's evil in the world, look for the helpers. Look for the helpers. I think her point was the original glory is out there, right? In every moment of tragedy, it doesn't make the evil of man better. It doesn't make the evil of man go away, and it doesn't make that corruption untrue. But it does help us and give us hope and point us back to that connection to God, I think, if we can remember that whenever ever there's a tragedy, whenever there's evil, you will find there's people out there who are reflecting the glory of God as helpers. So look to the helpers. And it's true. I've seen, I've been alive long enough now, I've seen a lot of catastrophes. I've seen a number of tragedies. But every time they're there, whether it's 9-11 or COVID, look for the helpers. They exist. Find the people who find ways to love in a loveless society. They exist. Look for the helpers. The beauty exists underneath the paint marks. And it is important that we point our children to that. I think we need our children to understand that the evil in the world is real. But I think we also need them to understand that so is the beauty of God. So a few things that I want to point out in that is recognize that, yes, there are a few others that have incentive that, that, to recognize that there's not very many people who have incentive to point out that glory exists. And there are some specific people in our world who have incentive to point out the evil. Number one, politicians, their goal is to change things. They want to give you a reason to elect them or keep them in office. And one of the ways they do that is by reminding you of all the things that are not good that they can fix. So understand, politicians, the best of them, are not going to have incentive to point us to the beautiful things. I think, ironically, some of the most successful politicians were successful because they did point us to the beautiful things, because they had a certain optimism to them. But that's not where our culture is today, for sure. Number two, news agencies get ratings from bad news. But I'm not picking on news agencies for this. I want you to think about this for a moment. When you watch a news report, Yes, you're going to get bad events. You're going to hear about the bad things that happen because that drives up ratings. But think about this for a moment. The day that good news becomes rare enough that that's the news we get all the time is the day you should really start worrying. You understand the reason bad news gives ratings is because it's unusual. Right? If it was unusual, just to give you a really good example, you never see a news report that says, Flight 9426 arrived safely on time today. Why don't you see that? Because that's what usually happens. What you see instead is flight 4296 crashed. Why? Because it doesn't happen a lot. <laughs> I am frail human. My words do not have that effect. Okay. No. Yeah, <laughs> you could. <laughs> Nonetheless, the point is, that's news because it's unusual, 
right? So, so take heart and remind your kids that when bad news is all they ever see in the news, remind them, well, that means good stuff is still the norm and bad stuff is unusual. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> that helps. Number three, there are some few who do preach positivity, but often they do so with denial and no depth of reality. They don't acknowledge the world contains ugliness or evil. They simply say that all people are all good and somehow ignore the Hitlers and the realities of the world. And I got to say, I don't think that message helps our kids because they will grow up and see the falsehood of that soon. So I don't think we help them see the good by ignoring the evil. I think we help them see the good by letting them know as age appropriate that evil exists, that ugliness is there, but look for the helpers because the glory of God is underneath it all. And the fact that we are always looking for that, the fact that we know already that the world is messed up and yet our souls keep insisting that there must be beauty out there, that is proof to me, and I hope it will be to you, that there has to be more. That this can't be all there is. If all we've ever known is all there is, then we would never look for anything else. But because all we've ever known is not all there is, and God has written eternity into the souls of mankind, then despite our frail limitations and our original sin, we seek out that original glory, and that leads us to the gospel where redemption can take place. Amen? Go with God. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.